All right, let's start out with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to come and open up your word today. I pray that you would help me to rightly divide your word. Lord, that we would be changed by the truth that is in your word, that we would be doers of your word, not hearers only, that it would bring lasting change. Thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us, that you are not silent, but you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so continuing on in the person and work of Christ, we're going to be looking today at Christ as the husband of the church. So um, scripture uses the picture of marriage um, to display, put on display, Christ's relationship with the church. We see this picture throughout scripture. Um, We see it in the Old Testament regarding Israel and Yahweh in, um, in that relationship. Um, and so we'll, we'll explore uh, how Scripture uses this and, and, and what we, can we understand about who God is uh, from this picture. So we're going to start out um, looking at the picture of marriage in the Old Testament between God and Israel. So we're going to start out with Ezekiel chapter 16. So it seems like um, in the Old Testament that um, this picture of marriage between God and Israel and the unfaithfulness and adultery of Israel is the primary means of God's depiction of the unfaithfulness of his people in going after the idols of the land. So uh, Ezekiel 16 We're going to start in verse 8, um, but for a little bit of context. Um, so we have here that um, we have this imagery um, of is basically in Ezekiel chapter 16, uh, chapter 16, we have kind of a history of Israel um, that is in more um, poetic form um, of looking at it in the relationship of Christ of, of God and Israel, his bride. Um, so it starts off with talking about how Israel was as a newborn child who was um, uncared for, abandoned, left to die, and yet God had mercy on Israel. Israel was a small nation, insignificant, among the, the massive peoples of the land, and yet God had mercy and compassion on the people of Israel and caused them to live. And he caused them to flourish. He caused them to grow up. And then in verse 8, starting in verse 8, he says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, I'm sorry, uh, verse 8, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. 
Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So we'll stop there for now and we'll, we'll continue on, um, but I want to focus in just on this passage right here, this section. We have um, God displaying beauty upon the people of Israel. And that came through many forms. It came through the giving of the law, right? His glorious law, His commandments to walk in righteousness and goodness, right? Um, and that was one way in which the Lord bestowed beauty upon the people of Israel. They were a people that were separate from the rest of the nations, and they were a people that the nations were to look at and say, what type of God is it that would give them such wonderful laws? And then, initial, and then another thing that he bestowed upon them is physical blessings. He, he gave them the promised land, right? He gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them abundance. They go from wandering in the wilderness with eating manna to eating these, you know, huge grapes, right? Uh, milk and honey, just abundance of produce that was theirs to have. God blessed them abundantly as his people. As a husband is bestowing beauty upon his wife, he, God is blessing Israel and beautifying Israel in the eyes of the nations. But instead of that leading to, for Israel to give thanks and rejoice and, and just seek to serve the Lord even more, instead they took that beauty and instead they used it to play the whore with the nations. It says in verse 15, um, Ezekiel 16, verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. He took some of your garments and made, you took some of, of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been seen nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. So we see that God is depicting the unfaithfulness of Israel in going after the gods of the nations as an adulterous woman leaving her husband to, to go after other men. But she, Israel is taking the beauty and the good things that God has bestowed upon her and using that to pursue her lusts and her desires and to pursue the gods of the land. 
after all the things that she's using for her adultery are the things given to her by her husband. And it says that they that she did not remember the days when she was wallowing in her blood. She did not remember that this beauty was bestowed upon her by God. This was not her own. That she was left to die, but because of the mercy of God and the love of her husband, He bestowed on her these blessings. And yet she, she does not remember where she came from, but instead puffs herself up in the beauty that she has and commits adultery with the peoples of the land. This is not something that came by surprise. It was foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. There's a prophecy of what Israel were to, was to do when the Lord was to prosper them. In Deuteronomy 32, this is God speaking to Moses. Starting in verse 13. Talking to Israel, how God had, it says, He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. Talking about Israel. And he uh, suckled him with the honey out of the rock, and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams, of Bashan and goats with the very finest of the wheat and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of grape of the grape but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked you grew fat stout and sleek then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods with abominations they provoked him to anger they sacrificed to demons that were not no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that they had come to uh, come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no, uh, no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Right. So we see here God foretelling of what was to come. That he's that when God was to bestow all of these gifts upon Israel, that they would grow fat. And they would rebel against the one who had given them these gifts. And they would seek after other gods, the gods of the land, instead of the one who was the one, the giver of all of these good things. And we see God's anger with the people of Israel for their unfaithfulness towards Him. Right? And He's, He uh, turns them over to exile, where the nations take them away as captive. There's another um, passage, Hosea. Um, Hosea 1 is another example of, of God illustrating the rebellion of Israel with a picture of an unfaithful bride. Hosea chapter 1. Starting in 
Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We're just going to read verse 2 here. Um, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Their forsaking of the Lord was that of an adulterous woman committing adultery, an unfaithful woman. And then in verse um, two, in, in chapter two, we see the judgment that God has decreed against this unfaithful wife. But then we see in verse fourteen. Something really amazing. We see the love that God has for an adulterous wife, an unfaithful wife who had spurned His goodness, had pushed Him aside. And yet it says in verse 14, after the Lord says there's going to be punishment, right? There's going to be wrath because of of your iniquity. He says in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That's, that's amazing. That, that despite all of the unfaithfulness that the Lord promises to restore to himself this bride. And he, he promises to restore in, in a relationship of faithfulness. He will be um, that I will betroth you to me for he- forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. No longer is she going to be turning away to seek after other gods, but she's going to return to her husband in faithfulness. So now we're going to turn to the New Testament and look at how this picture of marriage is described in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see Paul's heart in seeking to have the people, the church, be brought up in holiness. 
He says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 2, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So we see this imagery of husband and wife continuing on into the New Testament with Christ and the church. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 and spend the majority of our time, the rest of our time here in Ephesians chapter 5. Because God has revealed His character to us through this picture of marriage. So Ephesians 5, um, 22-33 is what we're going to be looking at. And in context, we have the first part of Ephesians, Ephesians 1-3, through where God is laying forward, uh, or uh, Paul is laying forward just the bountiful gifts that God has bestowed upon His people. Just the glorious truths of who we are in Christ Jesus. That we have been saved from the wrath of God. That we are, um, that He has given us um, all of these spiritual gifts and, and the depths of His love. And then He says, walk in holiness. Walk in a manner of righteousness in light of all of this truth that God has done for you. How are to live? Don't go, don't pursue the filth of the world. Don't pursue the things of the flesh, but pursue being conformed to the image of Christ. And he lays out multiple practical ways and what does that look like in everyday life? In verse 17, it says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on to dis- display what is one area. So it talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he looks at what does that look like in the context of a husband and wife relationship. So in, in, in verse 22 it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, in order to for for Paul, he, he's sent, giving instructions on how a husband ought to love his wife, how a wife ought to submit to her husband, and all of this is grounded in the example of Christ in His church. That's where he goes. It's not a checklist of do's and don'ts. Okay, well, you just got to do this because I said so. He's grounding it in the very basis of Christ and his church that marriage is a picture put on display of the love that Christ has for his church and the submission of, of the church towards Christ. And so we can understand the truths about the character of God and the nature of God by looking at how husbands are to love their wives. Because he doesn't just say, husbands, love your wives, and leave it like that. He expounds upon it. In which way should we love our wives? What does that practically look like? So the first aspect that I want to look at is... The testimony of love of the husband for his church in his death on the cross. So that is the first aspect that is addressed when, when Paul is addressing the husbands. How should you love your wives? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So this is the first illustration that God uses. How should a husband love his wife? As Christ loved the church. Okay, well, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. And why is it that he gave himself up for her? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Sanctify has the idea of being set apart as holy, pure, separate unto the Lord. As the, as Christ loved the church, the assembly, the people of God, and he, he gave himself up for her for the purpose that he might sanctify her, set her apart as holy and pure, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So we see the means of cleansing is through the washing of water by the word. And I was thinking about that, you know, what, what exactly does that mean? Because because this this cleansing having cleansed right it's a uh, it's in the aorist tense which means it's a um, definite it's it's taken place at a at one point in time it's 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 done like it's it's not like a continual action right the focus is on one point in time here having purified himself having um, that he um, sorry that uh, cleansed her having cleansed her. By the washing of water with the word. Right? So the means is the, the washing of water by the word. We see this imagery of washing 
uh, of washings that is throughout the Old Testament, right? The priests were to wash themselves, to purify themselves before coming into the presence of God. Because they were coming into the presence of God. They had to be pure. So there was these ceremonial washings that took place, which is pointing forward to what Christ did on the cross to wash us, to cleanse us of our sin. But it's through the uh, water of the Word, through the proclamation of the Gospel, through the proclamation of the Word of God, there is forgiveness of sins. There is the Gospel applied. When there is the Word that goes forth, and the people of God hears the word, repents of their sins, believes in Jesus Christ, there is a washing, a purifying from the filth and the stains of their sin. And what is the purpose of this purification and this cleansing? It is so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the goal and the aim of Christ. It was not merely to pay the debt for sin. It included that. But the aim that He had set out for His people was that He would to present them to Himself as a bride without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, without any impurity at all unto himself. And he was willing to go to the utmost extremes in order to accomplish that. To the extent of laying down his life for his church. That's the degree to which he was wanting to accomplish this cleansing, this purifying, that he wants the people of God to be presented before him in splendor without blemish or spot or wrinkle or anything of, of like-minded. And there's a point in time in which we, the church, will be presented before Christ. And He will have accomplished His work of, of without spot, without blemish, purified and holy church because of His work on the cross, purifying for Himself a people presented before Him as holy. We were wallowing in our sin, in the filth of our sin. We were abhorrent to look at. It was a ghastly sight in our sin, in our impurity, before Christ. In our, and, and yet Christ loved us in that state such that He would come to wash us and cleanse us from that filth, to present us to Himself as pure and holy. He did not love a bride that was beautiful. His love was for a bride that was filthy and abhorrent. And He came to, beautify, uh, to make His wife beautiful, to purify Himself, His wife, for Himself, to clothe her in white garments, to present her to Himself as a beautiful woman. It is Him who bestows upon the church the beauty and the purity and the loveliness that we have. 
is through the love that Christ has for His church. That this is the destination that He has set out for His people to be a, a, a pure people unto Himself, holy. We see similar language in the passages that we read earlier in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, looking back there again, um, and, and think about what we've read about Christ purifying for Himself a people to present them before Him as one that is without blemish and without spot in splendor. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter 16 in in verse 4. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you, to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you. But you are cast out on the open field, for you are abhorred on the day that you were born. That's where Christ found us, wallowing in our sin and our filth. And yet He said to us, live. He made us flourish like a plant in the field. He bestowed upon us beauty, as described in verse 9-14. through That He bathed us with water and washed off our blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. Is that not what Christ has done for us? That we are made beautiful not because of our own deeds, but through Jesus Christ. And also, He seeks to purify Himself, the the people of God, through the preaching of the Word of God, through conforming them to the image of God here on earth. right? That we might be pure and holy, set apart for Himself here on earth. Positionally before God, we are pure because of what Jesus Christ has done. And there is a purification that goes on in in the the day-to-day sanctification being made more into the image of Christ that He is accomplishing to purify for Himself a people in splendor. This is the example laid out for husbands. This is what Christ has done for His church. And in like manner, husbands, you are to love your wives. A proper understanding of Christ's love for His church is necessary for a husband to properly know how to love his wife. If we don't understand this love that Christ has for His church, then how do we know what it looks like to love our wives? 
husbands, the heart of the husband is to have the wife presented before the Lord pure, spotless, blameless on the day of the Lord. To purify her. To see her grow in holiness, in Christ-likeness. And what is the extent to which Christ did that for us? To the very extent of laying down His life for us. That's, that is a depth of a love. Yes? I was just going to point out how amazing that is because it, it goes back all the way to our uh, Eden experience with Adam and Eve, what his job was to do, and therefore reflected in what we ought to do, but perfected only in what Christ has done. Yeah. Uh, the greatest work that Christ will have to present to the Father is, in fact, the church, and the greatest work a husband can present to the Lord on that day is the work of his wife. Amen. Yes. And you see that's Paul's heart for the church, right? As a um, pastor, as, as a apostle, he yearned to see these people brought up into the maturity, to be presented before Christ as a, a uh, virgin, pure and holy. And that should be the same desire of every husband on behalf of the wife. And to the extent of which Christ did that for His church, being willing to lay down His life for His church. Others ought to look at the marriages and see the love that the husband has for his wife and see that they should, they should think, oh, how awesome is the love of Christ for His church. Right? That's what marriages ought to be as a display a display of, of it's, it's a picture of Christ's love for His church. And so, coming to the Lord and crying out to Him for help, because this is, not some, this is something that only God can do. This is, the Spirit of God must work through the man in order to give this sacrificial love, selfless love. You see that in Philippians 2. The love that Christ had and, and willing to give up the selflessness of Christ in obedience to the Father to do His will. It's, it's a selfless, right? This is not for the selfish. You cannot be selfish and put this picture on display. It doesn't work because this inherently is selfless of Christ giving himself up for the church. And we have a great high priest who sympathizes in our weakness, so we can come in our weakness. Lord, we have failed. Help us. Help us to be godly and, and loving our wives as Christ loved the church. There's a second aspect of marriage, that is Christ, our husband as head of his body, the church. That's the second depiction of what marriage is. And it's really something that until 
doing this study, I hadn't made that connection of marriage and Christ as the head of the church. I, I was seeing those as separate. As you have Christ as the head of the church, that's an analogy, and you have Christ as the husband of the church, and that's another analogy. But actually, we see here in Ephesians that this picture is actually inherent in marriage itself. One of the purposes of marriage. In fact, it says um, in, in verse 28, it says, in the same way, talking about that Christ gave himself up for the church, loving her to, to purify her for himself, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It says in verse 23, this is talking about the reason given for wives to submit to their husbands. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So we see here in Ephesians that, that Paul is linking this concept of Christ as the head of the church to marriage, the husband being the head of the wife. But we see here also what does it mean for Christ to be head of the church? We get a glimpse into what that means. Now, it is one of authority. It says in verse 23, uh, 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself a sa its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So it is one of leadership and authority, but it is also one of cherishing and nourishment. It says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. This is... Another picture that God has given for us in His Word for us to grasp in some degree the love that Christ has for His church. We see in, earlier on in Ephesians it says that He's praying that they might be strengthened to understand the depths of the love of Christ which is unsearchable. Like there is the depths and the breadth and the height of the love of God is such unfathomable that, that it must be somewhat, um, that the person must be strengthened in order to be able to receive this knowledge that it is so awesome in the true sense of the word awesome awe awe inspiring awesome his love for us that he's praying that they might be strengthened so that they might be able to receive uh, this this knowledge of the love that Christ has for his people and so God has just put that on display here in this um, picture where we have a, a the husband who is to love his wife as he loves his own body. It says, He who loves him, his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Nourishes, that, that, um, that idea of nourishes um, there in the New American Standard Exhaustive Concordance, it says to bring up to maturity, to nourish. So when it's talking about to nourish, that, that, he, uh, no one, that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. That means bringing it up in strength and health. Nourishing it, caring for it. And then cherishes. It actually means to warm. And it's used one other, the root word is used one other place in scripture. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 7, it says, in, in that verse, it says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The NASB translates it, tenderly cares for her own children. So that, that should hopefully help give a little bit more depth to what it means for that Christ nourishes the church. That he cherishes it. That he tenderly cares for it. That he's not harsh towards it, but he's tender and knowing what the body needs, what's good for the body, and he cares for it as he would his own. And again, this is the example laid out for husbands. That they are to nourish and cherish their wives as Christ does the church, seeking to bring them up in holiness before the Lord, being tender with them. If you're, if, if you have an injury, you're going to be much more tender with your own injury than if it's a stranger. You might be more harsh with a stranger. Now, Christ, perfectly loving perfectly, understands when it's necessary to scrub that wound, even when it's painful, because that's what's good for the body. That's what's loving for the body. But it's only going to be insofar as it's necessary. We also see in this depiction of the, the husband being the head and the wife being the body. We see an intimacy, a deep intimacy that's pictured in marriage. That it, the union in marriage is so close, so united that it's as if they're one body, one flesh. With the husband as the head and the wife as the body. It's a tender union. But Paul reveals that this goes deeper, more than just physical marriage. It goes beyond that. He talks about in verse, it talks about starting, starting in verse um, 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And I'm not going to try and expound too much on that mystery because it's a mystery. But Paul's pointing out here that this, when it's talking about, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, that that is speaking more than just marriage, physical marriage. It's pointing towards Christ and the church. It's a mystery. This union and this love of Christ and His church as Christ is the head and us His, his body. Alright, so that is um, all that I have as far as the main topic. So just wanted to take a little bit of time to discuss some application and and do a little bit of recap of, of what we looked over. We have the example of Israel's unfaithfulness in the Old Testament, right? Being contributed to one of an unfaithful wife to her husband. And they were going after the gods of the nations. We have a husband who has graciously bestowed us all good things. Every good thing comes from above, from the Father of lights. And let us not be like Israel who took all of those blessings that God had bestowed on them and pursued other things. And idols, covetousness, which is idolatry, Scripture says. A desire after things above God. Pursuing pleasures and sin instead of Christ. That is as an adulterous woman turning away from her husband. Let's behold the love of God for us and walk in holiness and righteousness and not turn away to pursue the deeds of the flesh. Let us not be like Israel who forgot the days of their youth when they were naked and bare, wallowing in their blood, when they took for granted all of the goodness and the blessings that God had given upon them. Let us remember that we were too once children of wrath, but God had mercy on us, that He would wash us and cleanse us to be a people for Himself, to clothe us in the splendor and beauty of His righteousness. In fact, it talks about in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one. It says, "For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue." And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Let's not forget that we've been cleansed from our former sins. Let's behold the love of our of our husband, Jesus Christ, and be conformed to his image. To walk in holiness set apart for himself. Let's also be faithful to our head as as the church submits to Christ. We are to submit to Christ. Because He has has given us life. And He is our head. He is our head and we are the body and we are to submit to Him. And we are to submit to Him but also knowing He is one who cherishes His body. Who nourishes it. Who cares for it. And an evidence of Him caring and nourishing and cherishing His body is the gathering of the saints. That He set teachers and, and preachers and pastors to nourish and cherish and care for His body so that they might be built up in love. Let's not neglect those means that He has given for us to be built up. The Word of God and prayer. Let's put away sexual immorality in thought and in action because this is an affront to the picture of Christ's love for His church and is the church's submission to Christ. Sexual immorality is a perversion of the love of Christ for His church. It's a demonstration of unfaithfulness instead of a, demonstra- instead of a demonstration of faithfulness. We ought to be faithful for those who are married, to be faithful to your wives, to love your wives. And for those who are still single, to be faithful to the Lord, to be pure and holy, to not pursue wickedness in immorality and impure thoughts, to preserve this picture that God has given to us in marriage. And when we behold God's love for His church, what is our heart posture towards the people of God? Right? If God loves His church to this degree, I'm guilty of speaking ill of the church of God and speaking lightly. Instead of being grieved over sin, and in, in the sins of others, instead of being haughty, haughty and, and oh, look at them, looking down at them. But we see that God desires them to be presented before Him in splendor and holiness. And that ought to be our desire as well for one another. Not that we, we see that Paul, when he's talking about those who fell away, his response was grief. I tell you even now with weeping, that they are enemies of the gospel. This this is not a pleasant thing, and I see myself. You have 
big pastors who are falling to critical race theory and all of these other things that are creeping into the church, it should cause grief. That's, that's what it should cause. Mourning over their sin. Seeking them to repent and to turn back. Not one of haughtiness and, and, and looking down upon them, but instead just seeking them, wanting them to be reconciled to Christ. For the unbeliever who is separated from Christ, you are still in the filth of your sin. You have not been washed. You're not clean. There is none who has said to you, live. You are dying on your way to eternity, separation from Christ. But there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins that you can wash yourself and be cleansed from your sin. Come to Jesus Christ, believe in Him and His work on the cross to pay the debt for sin and you can be pure, purified, set apart to serve Him. No longer walking in the filth of your sin, but turning away, turning to Christ, who is a good, lovely husband, who cares for his people. Turn to him and be saved. Don't, don't continue on in your filthy garments. Don't continue on trying to scrub yourself clean. No, the only way to be clean is to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for Your love for us. Let this spur us on to love others. We love You because You loved us first. That our love would deepen as we behold Your beauty. Lord, I easily forget these truths. Please, bring these to mind. Let me not forget them. In Jesus' name, amen.